Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church Podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host, and I'm glad that you are listening. If you would, please hit the plus button on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify as a way to help more people find this audio content. This audio is recordings from our Sunday gatherings. And if you would like to support what happens here on this podcast or in the Brew Church community in general, there's a giving button in the description of this. Uh, We hope that this is helpful for you and that you gain some good tools to lead to a life of abundance. Enjoy. Talking about making amends. So that's fun. Um, But first... I want to talk about uh, one of the most underrated rivalries in TV history. I would argue it's underrated, not necessarily because it's an unknown show, but because if I were to ask you what are some of the best rivalries in TV history, you probably wouldn't reference this one because it's not a traditional rivalry, but I think it is one of the best rivalries and I think it's a true rivalry because it's psychological and emotional warfare. It's the rivalry between Jim and Dwight from The Office. (laughs) So if you don't know much about Jim and Dwight, their weapons of choice are pranks and throughout the show Jim and Dwight prank each other on a very consistent basis and you, if you aren't familiar with them, uh, Jim is basically your quintessential uh, silently quitting employee. So the person <laughs> that doesn't really do their actual job, they kind of just coast, um, and he's bored most of the time. And Dwight is your quintessential employee that tries way too hard and takes their job probably a little too seriously, and they have neighboring desks So, you know, they clash a lot because their work behaviors clash and uh, just their life in general is completely different. So Jim pranks to relieve his boredom and Dwight pranks to get revenge on Jim. (laughs) And one of my favorite pranks that Jim pulls on Dwight is uh, so there's a time where he moves to a different branch of the company and he takes an entire box Like, not just a ream of paper, but, like, he takes an entire box of Dwight's stationery, and he sends Dwight faxes from himself from the future. Like, for example, uh, he sends him one (laughs) that says, don't drink the coffee. It was poisoned at 8 a.m., and so Dwight runs and knocks a coffee out of somebody else's (laughs) hand because he legitimately thinks it's him from the future, and uh, the coffee's poisoned. And one of Dwight's best pranks is amazing because it was actually a reversal of a prank that Jim was trying to do. Uh, Dwight creates this policy that if there's radiation in the building, in the office, they have to clear the building for an entire week. And so Jim, trying to get that week off because he's a lazy employee that doesn't really care about his workplace that much, he puts a half popped bag of popcorn in Dwight's desk. And so Dwight opens it up. He sees the bag of popcorn. He has this look in his eyes like, oh my gosh, there's enough radiation in the building to pop the bag of popcorn. So they shut the place down for a week. But Dwight was one step ahead. 
he had a bus, an entire bus, remodeled with desks inside of it. So instead of getting a week off, all the employees cram into this bus, and they were miserable. And the thing was, the thing that made it so genius for Dwight is that everybody knew what Jim was trying to do. So the moment that they have to cram in this bus and things start going wrong, everybody blamed Jim because <laughs> he was the one who started it. And Jim notices Dwight at the end of it smirking, and Dwight says to him, what can I say? I love justice. I love justice. So this idea of justice is interesting because whenever harm is caused, we're talking about relationships and repairing relationships, when something happens in our life, there's maybe this expectation, right, that there's going to be justice that wrongs will be made right, that harm will be repaid with something, anything. And these feelings can be especially strong when someone hurts us. We maybe hope that they'll do their part to fix it, or at the worst, we hope that they'll experience consequences. Maybe we even create the consequences, whether directly or indirectly. So the question, the overarching question is, what is it within us that hopes for justice? There's this concept that transcends various cultures. Uh, for the Maori, it's, the, it's communicated with the word vakapapa. For the Navajo, it's hosho. For many Africans, the Bantu word ubuntu. And the meanings vary slightly among all those words but they all communicate this similar message that we are all connected to each other in this vast web of relationships. And that our flourishing is related to the flourishing of our neighbor, our loved ones, our enemy, and nature itself. And in the Hebrew tradition, there's this vision of shalom this time when everything is in proper relationship with each other, humans, creatures, the earth, all in right relationship with each other and with the creator. And I would argue that our desire for justice is tied to the fact that we long for shalom. We have a deep desire for healthy, meaningful relationships where we feel safe, understood and valued where we can be our authentic selves and where we experience unconditional love and when harm is caused when there's wrongdoing it can disturb that it can be disorienting it can make it difficult for us to feel quote-unquote all right and there's a passage in the New Testament where Jesus talks about those times when harm is caused and how to respond. And he says this. You might be familiar with it. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So this passage is a uh, part of 
Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and this gospel, the Gospel of Luke, is the only place it's found, so one would assume he only preached this message once, but some scholars think that it was his stump speech. So he went from town to town and said this to every single town that he went to. It was like his main message, the main thing he was trying to get across. And the sermon has a bunch of different things in it. It contains challenges to conventional wisdom, critique and analysis of certain laws and customs, discourse on how to treat the poor. And in this particular passage, Jesus tackles the concept of justice. And he suggests a countercultural approach to justice. One that was a challenge not just to the customs of the day, but that's a challenge to our most basic intuitions. He said, he says, when you're wronged, don't repay the wrong for a wrong. Instead, go one step further. If someone slaps you, turn the other cheek so they can slap the other one. If someone takes your shirt, give them your coat. If someone makes you do something, go further than they expected you to go. And it could be that Jesus meant us to interpret these passages literally, but he picked very niche situations, so it's very difficult to, <laughs> to sort of live them out literally. So it's more that he's making a point. And he's not necessarily saying, allow yourself to become abused more. He's making a point. In the first example, Jesus references a slap on the right cheek, which to do that, somebody would have to do a backhand slap. That wasn't just physical damage. That was a lack of respect for the person. If you respected somebody, you would slap them like this, apparently. I don't know if we have that concept in, I guess, I, the back, you know, the, well, yeah, the, we, we have a term for it. I won't use it. <laughs> uh, starts with a B. <laughs> Uh, and then he also says, uh, so he says to that, turn the other cheek, which is a reversal of the lack of respect. And not only that, in doing the action of turning the other cheek, you're actually forcing them to look into your eyes and recognize you as a fellow human being. And in the second example, clothing was the sign of status. So by handing over your coat, you're essentially making the person that's harming you experience the feeling of taking your dignity. And the third example is in reference to a Roman law that one must carry their things, a Roman soldier's things, for a mile if they ask you to. And as a way to subvert the law, he says, go beyond the law. Because just imagine you're a soldier and you have this person, you're like, hey, carry my things for a mile, and you expect them after a mile, they're probably going to stop. But then they just keep going. And probably in that next mile, you begin to feel the sense that you are causing them harm for having them do it in the first place. Following this, Jesus talks about love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Both of those things are this reminder that even the worst people we know, the ones we might dislike the most, are human beings. In his wisdom, Jesus offered a way to disrupt the cycle of harm by restoring the web of relationships through a reminder of the humanity of the other. Because 
if you think about the revenge thing, think about Dwight and Jim. Revenge never stops at an eye for an eye, right? It gets deeper. Because if we let ourselves sort of get in that mindset of I want them harmed so bad that they have worse harm than they what, what they caused me, you can see how it can get in this pranking cycle that just never ends and goes the entire whatever eight to, uh, I don't even know how many seasons The Office does, but it just goes forever. So there's this concept called restorative justice that's baked into this story and I think has something to say about our relationships. And it's different than our typical understanding of criminal justice. It sees a violation not as a breaking of a law, but as a violation of another human being. And thus, the fix isn't guilt, but an obligation to make things right, to make amends. And it sees the end goal as healing, the wound that was caused by the violation. Instead of asking what laws have been broken, who did it, and what do they deserve, it asks who's been hurt, what are their needs, and whose obligation is it to respond. And it's been proven to work. It worked for Rwanda after dealing with the genocide. And in our personal relationships, it can reframe how we go about the process of healing. And just to be clear, the person that's harmed isn't the one responsible for making amends. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what restorative justice says. Instead, the person that's harmed is invited to focus on the two most important things. What was the harm and what are the needs? When we're harmed, Instead of waiting for the person that caused this harm to make amends, we can focus on our wounds, figure out what our needs are, and we can go on this process of healing for ourselves. And as we've talked about the last few weeks, this might mean confessing, sharing what's hurting us with someone that feels safe. This might mean reminding ourselves that we're unconditionally loved, this might mean going through the process of forgiveness, not for the sake of the person who caused the harm, but for ourselves so that we can heal and let go. And this might mean setting proper boundaries based on what our needs are. But if forgiveness is something the person harmed can do to heal, making amends is something the offender can do to heal. If we've done something wrong, if we harm someone in our life, then making amends might be a necessary step for us to be able to heal and let go. And this making amends step of the process is in the 12-step process for a reason. It's the ninth step. Because the person that's experiencing, struggling with an addiction may have inadvertently harmed people in their life through their addiction, and it's really helpful in the healing process to make amends with the people you've harmed. And it gives a really helpful guideline in the 12 steps. It says, make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So making it direct means making it specific, concrete, personal, 
For example, one thing I've learned in my marriage, it's been hard to learn, and I still don't do it well, but um, saying I'm sorry doesn't really help, <laughs> right? Have you ever said I'm sorry to someone, and they're like, what are you sorry about? <laughs> you say I'm sorry for this and for the harm that it caused you. Being specific is super important, but sometimes making amends can't happen because when the harm is significant enough, trying to make amends would cause further damage. That's why you see people who cause significant amount of harm sometimes starting a nonprofit or doing this speaking thing where they go around to different places to try to talk about the thing that they had done and how to live a life in such a way where you don't cause the same harm because the amends, as helpful as they are for the person that was wounded, sometimes can't happen because you shouldn't put an abuser in the same room or even close to somebody that was abused. So sometimes the abuser, for their own healing, it's really helpful for them to do something, to make amends in some other way. Whenever something happens that causes a tear in this web of relationships, making amends might be the thing that we need to do to heal. So I meant to say in the beginning that we're going to broaden from sort of our own personal context to a broader communal context. Um, so that's the shift that's happening right now. Um, so <laughs> this, this idea of restorative justice has broader impact than just our own interpersonal relationships because it sort of relates to that whole vision of shalom and it can reframe a lot of the things that we assume about Christianity like the word sin because it allows us to think about sin in a different way. It allows us to think about it not as some abstract violation for some abstract rule, but it allows us to think about it as harm caused. It allows us to reframe how we think about healing and moving forward as a society. It allows us to reframe how maybe we do our justice system, how we might heal the deep divisions that we have right now, and like I said, how to pursue this vision of shalom. And it's already led to a change in how uh, people think about helping those who have addictions instead of putting them in prison, which just furthers the cycle because then they feel the shame on top of whatever guilt they already have. We're starting to go towards a route of rehabilitation and healing for people that have addictions. And the broader context, or one example of the broader version of this, is a word that people have some feelings about, reparations for historic harms. And the reason people have difficult feelings about that word is because sometimes we have a more individualistic lens. That's how our society operates. And if you've ever heard someone say things like, well, slavery or segregation wasn't my fault, it's because it's difficult to conceptualize participating in a communal problem. But the Bible was written by more collectivistic societies. So when things like sin are referenced, yes, there's this idea of individual action, but 
It also has this communal action component. We call it in sort of uh, theological terms, communal or systemic sin. And it's less about arbitrary wrongs and it's more about how your actions affect your neighbor. Authors of the Bible understood the societal impact that communal sin can have. And they understood that for people to heal, making amends is necessary and it needs to be communal because this affects all of us. It's why MLK said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere because we're all interconnected. And for this vision of shalom to come to pass, we need to have this more communal lens to life. But I believe the biggest barrier, this is my own personal thoughts, but I'll share them with you, is that the reason we have difficulty with that is because there's this underlying assumption that maybe the world or God is cruel. If we view God as punitive, if we assume that admitting wrongs means punishment, then we're going to be resistant to making amends. And maybe we've experienced it before. Maybe we admitted a wrong and the response was negative and hurtful. Or maybe we've been told for a long time that God hates certain things. And so we have this idea of a God that's just waiting for the mistake to happen. And you can see why certain people have a visceral response to the idea of systemic sin. Because sometimes, I don't know what the percentage is, but it correlates with people that have a punitive view of God. (laughs) So they don't want to admit a wrong because they have this idea that God's going to punish them if they admit the wrong. So they ignore people that are hurting. And then they don't realize that they're also hurting at the same time because it affects us all. You can see how it's all connected. What if we assume that the world isn't cruel? Maybe sometimes it is. But what if we assume that God isn't cruel? That God is kind? How might that change us? How might that change our world? Maybe we'd be more proactive in making amends because we know the response isn't going to be hurtful. We know it's a necessary process for healing. Maybe we might be more concerned with everyone's healing and ultimately our own healing because we are all interconnected. And you can see it in the Bible, like in the story of Jonah. Now, it's not always the case. There are stories where God seems punitive, but it's like this thing that starts to change as you read the stories in the Bible. And there's a story of Jonah where God told Jonah to do something, and so he does it eventually, reluctantly at first, And he thought that God would respond to the evil city of Nineveh by destroying it, and instead God is compassionate, the prophetic vision of shalom. And then people in the Christian tradition point to Jesus as this example that God is ultimately compassionate and kind. So what if God cares more about this vision of shalom 
than the arbitrary wrongs that people are doing and punishing them for eternity? What if what God is doing, the work that God is doing, is trying to lead all of us towards this shalom or Ubuntu? That's not our word, but it's a similar idea that you can see is sprinkled throughout different societies, this idea of being healthy and flourishing and connected. And what if the invitation is for us to catch the vision? See, if we were to believe that God is good, that we were made good, if we started with that as the foundation, we might feel more safe to do the hard work of repairing our own relationships and the hard work of shalom for all. Going back to the personal, uh, one of the only times I've ever gotten yelled at at a job was, it was when I was teaching. Um, An English teacher had emailed all the teachers in the entire school, mass email, and had asked the question, uh, can I borrow 60 scissors for a class project that we're doing? And I, reply all, big mistake, responded with, yes, of course, you can buy, borrow the ones we have in our classroom and I got yelled at because I was allowing this other department to borrow things that were the science departments. And afterwards, for a long time, it affected me. I had a difficult time admitting mistakes to this person or leaning on this person. It didn't just affect me. It affected my relationships. It affected my classroom. There was all of these ripple effects to that one moment of pain, and eventually that person apologized for yelling at me, and they told me the reason why they were upset. They said, I fought so hard to get a certain budget for the chemistry department. And it was a hard-fought battle because there's so many people vying for budgets. And so when you offered something that we had, when I had fought so hard to make sure that we could have it in our classrooms, that was hurtful. And that changed everything because it humanized them and it felt like they saw me and the pain they had caused me. This work of repairing relationships is messy. It's not easy, it's not fun. There's a lot of grief, pain, and loss. There's this need and growing self-awareness that can come out of it. And there's also some humility that comes out of it. And yet it's some of the most important work that we can do because we're at our best when we have healthy relationships with ourselves, with others, even with nature and with our creator. And as I said from the very beginning of this entire series, we deserve to heal. We deserve to heal. Not just because the healing affects our individual lives, but also because it's sort of, at least what I believe, that God is doing. It's, it's the work that like God does here and there these little interruptions to sort of lead us towards this bigger vision of a better world. Thank you for listening to this episode. Peace and blessings, everyone.